early in the spring when we round up the dogie. We mark them and brand them and bob off their tails. Round up the horses, load up the chuck wagon, then send the dogies out on the long trail. We'll be tired, get long, you little dogie. It's your misfortune and none of mine. The next few days were like a continual festival with sailors overrunning the towns and drinking and singing in the place half the night. Every day was market day, and both Blinker and his master worked double shifts trying to bake bread enough for five crews. The water size was heaped with merchandise and casks of wine. The merchants employed every idle man and boy to help them store their goods, and all the soldiers were detailed to receive the supplies for the chateau and the forts. Even the churches and the priests were busier than usual. The sailors, though they might indulge in godless behavior, were pious in their own way, went to confession soon after they got into port and attended mass. They lived too near the next world not to wish to stand well with it. Well, that was a short passage from Willa Cather's Shadows on the Rocks. It's a scene in which, after a long winter, the ships from France finally return to Quebec, and you get a sense of what that... Uh, what kind of environment that that, that led to. Um, so in uh, this episode of this podcast, the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast, we're going to look at the second half of, of Shadows on the Rock, uh, books four, five, and six of this splendid, delightful novel um, Catherine wrote. It was published in, in 1931. Sorry, it's had to get my decade straight 1931 it was published it's um her second to, or her third to last novel that she wrote it followed up uh followed up uh, death comes for the archbishop in showing an interest in in um uh, the french presence in north america in that novel it was uh, french bishops who come to help sort of reclaim the american southwest for uh the official church um after the conquest of that region by the United States. This one goes back in time to, um, to 16, 1697 and 1698 uh, to the early years of Quebec and does a really uh, detailed look at life, at just everyday life uh, among the early settlers uh, in Quebec. And I really like this novel. I think it's a lot of fun. It's it's not very heavy. It's It's really enjoyable. And I think what really makes this novel so much fun are the wonderful vignettes the little stories we get throughout this throughout the novel um the the little side stories now there's not a lot of room for Catherine to work with the novel itself is only about 150 maybe a little pages maybe a little bit more than that six short stories but in that she really just fills it up with the daily slices of life, and and partially what helps her do that is she has a fairly small cast of characters to to work with. And that's going to be true of the rest of the novel she she wrote, where she she tells a you know a, a story that's really about life in a certain place, and and it does it by with a small cast of characters who we follow around. Um, so um, yeah, so in the first half of the novel, we we learned that. Well, we're introduced to our main characters, the apothecary, O'Clar, um, who and his daughter, C- Cecile, and they're prominent people in the, the colony with close relationships with the governor. In fact, O'Clar sort of works for the governor in a way, works for the state kind of as a doctor. Well, you know, he is the apothecary. 
Um, and when the novel opens, we see the ships leaving for France, and these ships will not be coming back until the end of the winter. So most of the first half of the novel is just that life, that isolated time. And there's a lot of focus on the isolation felt by the settlers uh, in Quebec, uh, how they may do without having those contacts. Uh, we also learn a little bit about the periphery of, of Quebec, the fur traders who come and go. And um, we're going to get more of that in the second half of the novel. What happens in the second half of the story, books four, five, and six, and the epilogue, the epilogue is actually set 15 years later, really at the, the the time that Louis XIV died. I think he died in 1714. So the governor of Quebec dies and Louis XIV is, will die soon. So that change and, and kind of what happened to Quebec over those, those 15 years or so. So um, what else happens? Well, the ships come back, right? And so we kind of get the summer and then the novel sort of ends up about, I think it's about a year after the events of the beginning of the novel, where again, you have autumn coming and the, the, you know, the colony preparing for another long winter. So chapter four, book four, is called um, Pierre Caron, and he's a really interesting bloke. Uh, we are introduced to him fairly early in the chapter. He's, he's like a friend of the family. You know, he's well known by Eau Claire and Cecile, and he comes to visit. Um, and this is how he's described. It's a rather long passage, but I, I think this description is nice because it really does show the kind of people that are attracted to French Canada. We saw a little bit of that last time, in the, especially with the character of Blinker, who's someone who's trying to go use the frontier to use French Canada as a way to get away from his, his past. Other people go there for adventure, um, for, for making money, uh, for a new start, for political reasons, whatever. Some go for religious reasons, right? That's a lot. Of, I think the strength of this novel is the, the people we meet who kind of fill in this tapestry of, of life in French Canada. So to um, quote early in this chapter, from his first meeting with them, Auclair had loved this restless boy. He was a boy then who shot up and down the swift rivers of Canada in his canoe, who was now at Niagara, now at the head of Lake Ontario, now at uh, Sault-Saint-Marie on his way to the fathomless forbidding waters of Lake Superior. To both Eau Claire and Madame Eau Claire, Peter Charon seemed the type that had come so far to find more than anything else, he realized that the romantic picture of the free Frenchmen of the great forest in which they had formed a home on the bank of the scene. He had the good manners of the old world, the dashing and daring of the new. He was proud, he was vain, he was relentless when he hated and quickly prejudices, prejudiced it. But he had the old ideals of clan loyalty, and in friendship he never counted the cost. His goods and his life were at the disposal of the man he loved or the leader he admired. Through, through his, this figure, he was still boyish. Or though his figure was still boyish, his face was full of experience and sagacity, a fine bold nose, a restless, rather mischievous mouth, white teeth, very strong and even sparkling hazel eyes with a kind of living flesh in them, like sunbeams on the bright wrappers on which he was so skillful. Um, so that's a that's a, a paragraph describing him. Then we get a little bit about his background, how his father from Languedoc had come to to be involved in the fur trade, and he's he so he's very much of a, a new worlder, but he still seems to have one foot in some ways culturally with the old world. And that's another theme of the novel, right? Is the the you know the fact that a lot of these characters are trying to hold on to these traditions from France, but also you know making do in this in this new environment. That's why I use the, the concept of Marchland so much in these, these last couple novels. So I think that's really what Cather is, is getting at in a way.
Um, so this guy shows up, you know, back to Quebec after, you know, his adventuring. And he just chills with, with the family for a while. And he drinks and he smokes. And it's kind of a pleasant little meeting. And then uh, he decides he wants to see his, his friends. Uh, what's their name? It's the Harnois. And, and, and it's on, they're kind of off away from Quebec a little bit, away from um, the, the town. It's like a day away. And, and he wants to go visit them, and Cecile wants to go with. So Cecile is kind of going on this adventure. She's never been there. It's, Ile de, it's called Ile de Orléans. That's the location near this colony where he wants to go. It's a fairly short distance, but she's never been there. And, you know, they're going to visit these people. So she goes along on this adventure, and there's, there's probably some... You, you, you could ship this, this couple if you wanted to. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's perhaps hinted at that, that these could be uh, a romantic couple. At least that's where I, I sort of saw it going. Um, but this chapter is really not about that. I think this chapter really, in addition to introducing this really interesting character of, of Charon, it, it's really about, I think, Cecile and her comfort level in the frontier. Because the, one of the major plots in this novel, and really the only major tension, I mean, there's some character tensions among the bishops and between the government and the church a little bit, but it's really backdrop stuff. And of course, you have the wars with England, again, very much in the background of the story. The main tension really is, does Cecile go back to France? Does she, you know, just leave the New World altogether? And um, here we see some of the reasons why she might be attracted to going back to, to France in that she does have a bit of discomfort with the, the frontier. And so this place they go, this, this, I, I, this Isle of Orléans, Ile d'Orléans, is, is kind of a frontier of the frontier, right? So the t things are fairly nice in the town, even in the winter. This is before the ships come back, but it's still fairly nice. In, in this place, though, the people, they, they like don't have very good shoes. The house isn't really well maintained. And it kind of irks Cecile a little bit. She's really not comfortable there. And this is one reason that after just a day there, and this guy, he seems to be having a fun time there, you know, seeing his, his friends and enjoying himself. But she wants to leave immediately, um, pretty much. And she, he talks, she talks him into going back. But she just seems to be very, very uncomfortable there. So, um, for instance, Cecile complains about the food there, and and he's kind of like, well, you know, he eats Indian food, he eats on the frontier, he's a, he's a hunter and, a, and an adventurer, sort of fur trader, and he says, when you can go to an Indian feast and eat bo dogs boiled with blueberries, you can eat anything. And she says, I don't see how I can do that, Pierre. I should think it'd be easier to starve. And he replies... Oh, do you, my dear? Try starving once. It's a long business. I've known the time when dog meat cooked in a dirty pot seemed delicious, but the worst food I ever swallowed was what they call trip de roche. I went out to the Lac La Mort with some Frenchmen early in the spring once. They were on a green lot. They let most of our provisions get stolen on the way. As soon as we reached the lake, we were caught in the second winter, a heavy snow and everything frozen. No game, no fish. We had to fall back on trip de roche. It's a kind of moss that grows on the rocks or on the lake, something like a sponge. The cold doesn't kill it when everything else is frozen hard as iron. You gather it and boil it. It's not so bad as it goes down. It tastes like boiled weed, but afterwards, oh, what a stomach ache. So he's certainly kind of making fun of her a bit for being a little bit too fussy about 
the reality of life in this place and these people seem to be kind of poor um, but she, she insists on going back right and and really she seems to have a very strong desire for the good life and she comes back and she explains herself a little bit to her father and eventually she um, well here's what she says he kind of says well they're nice people aren't they and and they have kind ways and she says yes they have she sighed and put her hand to her forehead trying to think they they had kind ways those poor harnois but that was not enough one had to have kind things about one too and then she she makes a dinner for pierre Coron, and she thinks you know she sort of thinks whether her food is better or not than what she ate there you know but at the end of the day you know the, the last fine the last line of the of the chapter is oh father i think our house is so beautiful where she really feels more comfortable in this environment than she did um out there so this is it's a seal comes off a little bit fussy here but you can kind of see why she might not be the right candidate to you know to, to live on the frontier the way pierre caron is he's just a, a wild hunter and, and, and fur trader who's willing to do anything to survive and um, more adventurous type and and so obviously someone who's not going to be fussy about things um, so you know this is kind of i think is part of the reason why the later half of the novel talks about this question of whether she's going to be returned to france um, book five is just a wonderful uh snapshot of, of life after these ships from France come. I gave you a taste of it at the beginning of this episode. Just a celebration of, of, of goods. It's a festival environment. Of course, you have these sailors, and the implication is that they are engaged in, in, in prostitution. We know there are sex workers in, in Quebec. That little boy we met in the, first, in the previous episode, Jacques, his mother was a sex worker. Um, and of course, you had that the king's women, I think it was called. These were these women who were sent over to marry the early settlers because there were not enough women, you know. And of course, we also know that there's all these these um, mixed blood people, you know, that from the fur trappers. A lot of fur traders had wives in Quebec, and they also had, you know, essentially mistresses or wives in in some Indian communities. So there's, you know, it is kind of a frontier in terms of of sexual liberties. Uh, to a certain degree, and I don't know, I don't know enough about the sexual history in France to to compare it, but we do get the sense here of a of a of a of a carnival almost, and a major celebration. So the ships from France, um, you know, kind of re, re end the isolation that our characters felt for for so much of the novel, and it it does kind of bring some resolution to that very first scene in the story, which is the ships leaving. Uh, but I'll tell you my favorite part of this chapter. It's, um, I think it's, it's Bishop Lavelle is, is the point of view here. Oh, no, sorry. It's, it's a priest, Father Hector St. Saint, Creer. Saint um, so she writes, he comes out uh, from a chateau where he had been delayed before Count Frotenac, a petition from the Christianized Indians of his mission on the salt. He lingered at the terrace to enjoy the prospect. He got to Quebec but seldom. The moon was high in the heavens, shining down upon the rock with its orchards and gardens and silvery steeples. The dark forests and the distant mountains were palely visible. This was not the warm, white moonlight of his own Provence, certainly, which made the roads between the mulberry trees look like rivers of new milk. This was the moonlight of the north, cold, blue, and melancholy. 
It threw a shimmer over the land, but never lay in velvet folds on any wall or tower or wheat field. Out on the river, the five ships from France rode at anchor. Some sailors down in the place were singing, and when they finished, their mates on board answered them with another song. Why, the priest wondered, were these fellows so glad to get back to Quebec? Why did they come at all? Why should this particular cliff in the wilderness be echoing tonight with French songs, answering to the French tongue? He recalled certain naked islands in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, mere ledges of rock standing up a little to sea, where the seabirds came every year to lay their eggs and rear their young in the caves and hollows, where they screamed and flocked together and made a clamor, while the winds howled around them and they spray beat over them. The headland was scarcely more than that, a crag where for some reason human beings built themselves nests on a rock and held fast. Yonder down by the waterside, before one of the rustic booths, he could see a small party seated at a table with lanterns. He could not see who they were, but he felt a friendliness in that company. A little group of Frenchmen, 3,000 miles from home, making the best of things. Having a good dinner, he decided to go down and join them. End quote. Uh, just a wonderful image of, of, of camaraderie among the sailors and uh, a meditation on the power of this place to to be attractive, not to this co co cast of characters we've met, but also these sailors who find it appealing and wonderful to to finally arrive here. There's something magical about this, and it even connects to the to the sky, the way the moon looks here compared to France. It's really just, I think, a, a beautiful scene, and it, it's hard to maybe nail down what that is. I don't think this priest, who apparently is a priest from from the West, from the more again the frontier of the frontier. Um, but uh, still, just I just think a wonderful scene showing this this mysterious draw of of Quebec. That's how it's often spelled in the book K E B E C Quebec. So the the main tension in this now in this chapter is then about Cecile going back. So when these ships return at the end of the summer, the the plan is Cecile's going to be on that ship and return to France. She doesn't really want to. We saw in the previous chapter she is a bit fussy about things and maybe this. Quebec's not the best for her, but instead she seems to want to make her future here. This is the world she knows. She even expresses doubt at whether, you know, her friends will be taken care of, especially Jacques. She, she kind of sees herself almost like a motherly figure for Jacques, who, who as we saw in the last episode, his mother is a, is a sex worker and maybe not the most responsible to, to be kind. She, she, Cecile sort of takes over that, those responsibilities. She, is, she lost her mother, so she's kind of the woman of the house. Um, and but she doesn't want to go, so she talks this over with with at, at the church. I think I think that's with Lavelle, maybe. Okay, um, book six is called the Dying Count. Um, so just like we had in Death Comes for the Archbishop, we have a major figure of, of of empire. Before it was the bishop, here it's the the head of the colony of Quebec dying. Um, but really, what's going on here is is everyone's staying and committing to the colony, right? He doesn't get recalled to France, he stays. Um, he, I think he thought he was gonna leave, but instead he stayed and he dies in France. He becomes part of, or dies in Quebec, he becomes part of, of French Canada. Uh, Eau Claire stay, keeps at his job and Cécile stays behind too. And so some of the, the tensions in the novel get resolved, the main one being Cécile's going to, to stay behind and then the Count um, just sort of dies. I think he, he basically dies off screen. Um, oh, excuse me. Um, and then the other thing that goes on here is winter is coming back, right? The, the ships depart and, you know, Cecile has to begin preparing for, 
for the next winter. So it, it, it parallels the opening scene of the book where Katha writes, no more boats from France would come to Quebec as late as this. Even her father admitted that, and his herbarium had been long put on the high shelf in the cabinet where it belonged. As soon as those dry plants were out of sight, the house itself changed. Everything seemed to draw closer together, to join hands, as it were. Cecile had polished the candlesticks and pewter cups, rubbed the table and the bedposts and the chair cloths with oil, darned the rent into her father's counterpane. A little more color had come back into the carpet and the curtain, she thought. Perhaps it was only because the fire was lit in the saloon every evening now, and things always looked better at the firelight. But no, she really believed that everything in the house, the furniture, the china shepherd boy, the casseroles in the kitchen, knew that the herbarium had been restored to its high shelves, and the world was not going to be destroyed this winter. A life without security, without plans, without preparation for the future had been terrible. Nothing had gone right this fall. Her father had not put away the wood doughs and fat, or laid in winter vegetables, or brought his supply of wild rice from the Indians. But we'll manage, she sometimes whispered to her trusty pole when she stuffed him with birch and pine. So it's, it's uncertainty. It's the same uncertainty they have every, every winter. You can never be too prepared. That's part of it there. And they seem to be less prepared, but they're going to um, struggle on in this new world. So I think the main theme here is the endurance, the permanence of, of this French Canada um, that the, the pull from France isn't as strong um, for the for these characters, and they are they are actually becoming part of French Canada. Um, so that that's the story. Shadow. We got an epilogue uh, set in 1715, 1713, 15 years after the death of the Count, um, and it just shows a couple things. One is it shows the changes in Quebec. It becomes more established. You know, it becomes more permanent. Some of those more harsh frontier realities. Um, fade away. Um, we also see a little bit more political conversations here in the sense of concerns about what's going on in France. Uh, now, 1713 was the final year of the War of the Spanish Secession, that very, very long war fought at the end of Louis XIV's reign, where the, the Bourbons tried to basically become the head both of, 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 of France and Spain, which would have really upset the balance of power in Europe. So you know, England led a coalition of other states that fought against France and Spain. And eventually, I think the resolution was Bourbons would rule Spain because there was like the heir, but it, it wouldn't be a joint monarchy the way Scotland and England were. But of course, the king dies. I think, I think Louis XIV dies in 1714. So that, a, that's, that era of French history is, is ending just as a new era in Quebec's history is beginning with these, the kind of these, the permanence of these, of this colony being established. And this world that has been described in that, the year of 1967 to 68, it survives those 15 years, so it's gonna survive on, right? That was the question Cecile asks at the end of, of chapter six is, are we gonna survive this winter? Are we prepared? And in fact, they are, they are prepared and the colony is strong enough to, to survive into the future, as are our characters. Now, the final lines of the novel do give the sense that there is something different about, there's something that immunizes French Canada from maybe some of the, you know, the re political realities of life in France, even though they're a little bit more aware. It seems to me they're more on the surface in the epilogue than they were in the whole novel. Um, this is what, this is how Catherine closes the novel. Quote, while he was closing his shop and changing his coat to go up 
to his daughter's house, he thought over much that his visitor had told him, and he believed that he was indeed fortunate to spend his old age here where nothing changed, to watch his grandsons grow up in a country where the death of a king, the probable evils of a long regency, would never touch them. End quote. Um, he's referring there to, to Louis XV, who, uh, a fairly long reign. Um, so there was a, I don't know much about that. I forgot some of that history about that regency. But anyways, that's the, that's the novel. Now, actually, we saw that Quebec changed, and that's part of the point of the epilogue. But still, from the perspective of, of our protagonist, it's, it's a change of a different type, or it's slower, or it's subtler, or you know, there's something special in, in Quebec. And I think that's the theme at the heart of all this, is just what is that draw that gets people to come to Quebec and then want to stay there, right? Um, you know, I think that's what makes that passage about the French sailors so kind of captivating for me, is that it really seems to sum up what Catherine's trying to do in this, this story. So anyways, um, that, that wraps it up. Uh, that's my thoughts on, on Shadows, Shadows on the Rock. Um, in the next episode, if you're reading along, if, if, if you happen to have access to Willa Cather's novels, in the next episode we'll be looking at Lucy Gayhart. Um, the title seems to suggest a happy-go-lucky girl, and there's some truth to that, a little naivety. Uh, we're just going to do one episode on this. It's a little bit over 100 pages, but not much. I think, let's say, 120. A very, very short novel. Um, it's, it's kind of, it reminds me of Song of the Lark in some ways, and that is about a frontier girl who goes to Chicago to study music. And so you can want to review my thoughts on Song of the Lark. I did four episodes, I think, maybe three episodes about Song of the Lark about a year ago. You can go back in the podcast and, and find that. Um, yeah, that was published in 1935. And it kind of, it brings us back to Nebraska and just like Song of the Lark, that connect. I think Song of the Lark was Colorado and Chicago, but this is Nebraska again, uh, kind of like old pioneers and, and what else is that in Nebraska? The prof uh, didn't the professor in the professor's house come from like Nebraska? The Lost Lady, I think, is set there. So it, it's kind of going back to, to those themes and those ideas that Catherine played with earlier in her career. This story though is, is, is quite tragic actually. It's quite, um, it's quite sad. Um, kind of, it's kind of the story of a naive girl who makes a big mistake and and pays severely for it. Um, so, anyways, uh, if you read that novel before, maybe you want to review it. Uh, I'm excited to talk about that, but I'll just do it in one one quick episode. So, if you have any thoughts about Shadows on the Rock, things I didn't mention, or, or different interpretation or approach to this story, please let me know what you, you think. Uh, you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also just leave your comments below. So, I will see you next time with my thoughts on Lucy Gayhart. Uh, thanks for raised away down in Texas Where the Jensen weed and the Sanders grow We'll feed you up on prickly perch foil and then send you open to old Idaho. Whoopie pie, I